We're trying to make the path, not just to purchase, but the path to learning and growing easier. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 325, which features a conversation with Tiffany Crosby. Tiffany serves as the Chief Learning Officer at the Ohio Society of CPAs, which serves the finance and accounting professions through a portfolio of learning options, through advocacy, through pipeline development, and more. As CLO, Tiffany oversees all elements of the society's learning, both its internal staff development and its external line of business. Tiffany also serves as the society's DEI officer, with, again, both an internal focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and an external focus on nurturing DEI within the accounting profession. Tiffany is an avid reader, a self-described learning enthusiast currently pursuing a PhD in organizational leadership, and someone who loves to ask why. Tiffany and Salisa talk about competency-based learning, blended and cohort-based learning, the impact of the pandemic on learning portfolios, using data to make decisions, coaching to support learning, trends she has her eye on, including blockchain and micro-credentials, content curation, and DEI. Tiffany and Salisa spoke in August 2022. Tell us a little bit about the the society's portfolio of learning products and services. You know, what kinds of learning do you offer? How many offerings a year? How many people do you serve? Just kind of those sort of, uh, you know, high-level sketch of, of what you offer. So at the society, we try and offer a, a wide breadth of what we would call delivery channels so that learners can engage in the way that is most convenient for them, most effective for them. And so we offer conferences, which can be one day, can be two day, can be half days, depending on what they are. And those conferences may have multi-track or they may only be general sessions where we're taking a single topic like fraud and forensics and delving deep into it through uh, various different angles or it could be that multi-track where you are able to get a wide range of competencies all associated with it. So we do conferences, we do seminars, we we do webcasts and webinars. Uh, we offer around 12 conferences a year. Uh, we have five that we consider our signature and that are uh, significant in, in scope. Our largest one has around 1,100 that individuals that that participate in it. And so we have those ones that are signature for seminars. We partner, we use some third-party partners to help with that portfolio. But in total, we offer around 60 to 70 seminars each year. It could be more. 
it changes and fluctuates based on things that are going in the profession. So we may add seminars that weren't previously on the schedule. And then for some of the webcasts and other things, we offer several hundred, again, through partnerships with third parties. So we do not do this alone. We we have really shifted our focus to be a little bit more of a curator when there's a lot of good content already out there. How do we sift through that noise? So we are not originating all of these things, but there are some things we do originate. And then we offer an on-demand portfolio that are several hundred courses. We do all of this around a competency framework of nine competencies that we've identified as relevant to the accounting and finance profession. And it it has a mix of technical and non-technical. So business management and strategy, as well as accounting and auditing, which would be what would people would more typically think of, but also talent management. And so with that, we have around, it varies, but but anywhere from about six to 8,000 or so learners that engage with us each year. Wow, it sounds like there's quite a lot going on there. And um, as you pointed out, not that all of it originates with you, but you know, you're know you serving that curatorial role and, and helping to cut through the noise, as you said, which I think makes a lot of sense just given the sheer volume of content that is out there. You brought up the competency framework. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. How do you define competency-based learning? And then how do you kind of match up what you're offering with that competency framework and those core competencies that you've identified? Yeah, so for me, competency-based learning is really about a related set of knowledge, skills, and abilities that really then come together to create a proficiency in a particular either topic, so it could be industry-specific, or in a more of a process or functional aspect. So they they really help you to get to a level of mastery or continue to have mastery. So we have, for example, from a competency standpoint, we identify talent management and DEI as a competency on our framework. But the goal of that is not to suddenly turn accounting and finance professionals into HR professionals. Right. And so with that, it is through the lens of finance and accounting. So what does proficiency in talent management and human resources need to look like for finance and accounting leaders? And what are those things that are specific to how you lead teams and manage teams and and how you develop people and coach them? How do you. Uh, set the right team climate and all of those things. So we we really look at it and we do combine role or sector that we're serving along with that particular body of knowledge and say, how does it need to manifest in that within that interplay? So we're not trying to create marketers. We're not trying to create all of those different operational specialists. But finance and accounting do need a certain proficiency in operations from a finance operations. So how does that come together from a competency standpoint? And how long have you had the competency framework in place? Has that been around for a long time or is it a newer initiative? 
The competency framework is newer. It's a journey that started probably in 2016, I would say, and that really came to fruition in its fullness in 2021 and now is is fully integrated into everything that we do. But it was a journey to get there. We had to look at our portfolio, figure out what was aligned, what wasn't aligned. So it helped us identify gaps. And then we had to go through a process of how do we fill those gaps? And, and then how do we put the same thought process into some of the other aspects of like our marketing communications, like things like our our voice magazine, CPA voice magazine or other things. So it has been a journey. I think that the journey itself taught us a lot. It really does help us now from a marketing standpoint, because we could be very clear. It also helped us establish boundaries even working with speakers or others as we're vetting, we now have these boundaries to say, this is our playing field, all right? And so this is what we're looking for. This is this is not what we're looking for. And so that really has helped make sure that we can stay more focused and not try and have everything in our catalog or portfolio and create a lot of confusion and even some anxiety. I don't know if anyone's ever gone to a store and you're like, I just want ketchup. (laughs) And you look and there's like 20 different flavors and there's all these different sizes. And it's like, I just want ketchup. (laughs) right? And so it, it helps us to make sure that we are really presenting something that is easy. We're trying to make the path not just to purchase, but the path to learning and growing easier. I like that emphasis on clarity that, it, you know, it's making it easier in the sense of clearly, here's what you need to be focused on. Here's what we offer in these areas and please engage. So that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious if you are currently doing anything with blended learning or planning to do anything with blended learning. And because blended learning can be one of those terms that can kind of mean different things to different people. What I mean is a single product that combines both online and offline learning components for all the learners, you know, so learners might participate in a a self-paced e-learning and then gather in person for a workshop where they go a little deeper and get more hands-on with the topic. Are, Are you doing anything with blended learning? Yeah, so we we piloted a blended learning program around a specific set of skills and knowledge, really specific more to how you operate from a consulting standpoint within a professional services firm. And so partnering with a thought leader in that aspect, so they do have online synchronous activities that they do with that thought leader, but they also have learning that they do outside of that, that is self-study and homework and assignments and information that they have to then communicate and turn back in or or homework they have to turn in from that perspective. And, And there was a lot of thought put into it. I will say that when we first piloted this approach, figuring out how to make sure that 
this cohort would stay on track and how we could monitor that and monitor the self-study pieces. And the online synchronous pieces are easy to monitor, but how we monitor both pieces and, and put it all together and what happens if they if they don't do the self-study piece of it and how that all works. So there was a lot of thought put in it. It went well. And so it was expanded this year same program. It's just last year was only offered, I think, once, maybe twice. And then this year it's been offered multiple times to, to multiple groups. So we we have not expanded as far as saying, OK, let's try that now with another topic or competency in another program. Not to say that we won't. We, we like what we're seeing. It just does take time. And I think that there needs to be a solid business case as to why blended learning versus other approaches, given the amount of time that's involved. And you really do need to have something that lends itself more to a cohort model, Mm -hmm. I think, to make blended learning make sense. And that cohort can be very powerful because it also helps to keep people on track and accountable. Absolutely. I do think that it's interesting to think about how important the cohort, how important the other students are in a a blended um, situation. Just to clarify, so in the blended program that you've piloted, everything is happening online or or are they gathering together in person physically at any point? Since this was initially launched in 2021, everyone was gathering online virtually. It was still synchronous, right? It was a set time and set amount of time. We have not yet challenged whether some of those pieces should be in person. We are doing some in-person learning this fall, all right? So we are pulling some of that back into our strategy and into our offerings, but we have not yet asked whether the synchronous part of the blended learning should be in person. And part of it is that The people that are engaging in this program right now are very dispersed. And so figuring out how they would get together in person would be a challenge. And that is one of the things we're finding out with some of our our virtual programs, even with our in-person component that we added to one of our, our programs this fall, where we thought that we would have a lot of registrations. There, it's not trending quite that way yet, and, and there's still time. And so we're, we're still hopeful that that will, will change. But then I looked at the virtual registration to see, well, is it that people in that area are choosing to still be virtual? And while there were a handful of people in that location that were registered for the virtual versus the in-person, the majority were not in that region of the state. And so we're we're looking at this and and if we had didn't have that virtual component of this in person, the all of these individuals that are in the other pieces of the state likely would not have registered. And so that is one of the challenges that we have is trying to serve the entire state and then trying to say, but how do we get that in-person engagement back into the lineup after going virtual as a result of the pandemic? 
At Tagoras, we're experts in the global business of lifelong learning, and we use our expertise to help clients better understand their markets, connect with new customers, make the right investment decisions, and grow their learning businesses. We achieve these goals through expert market assessment, strategy formulation, and platform selection services. If you're looking for a partner to help your learning business achieve greater reach, revenue, and impact, learn more at tagoras.com services. And so I do want to ask directly about the impact of the pandemic on your offerings on your portfolio, because I'm assuming and already beginning to hear from you that, you know, as a result of the pandemic, you did have to shift so much online, perhaps everything online. And so I'm just curious to know which pandemic-driven changes are, are you keeping in place? And are there, you know, changes that you're rolling back? Or how are you kind of approaching this potential reopening as the pandemic sort of lessens and it begins right. to feel safer to gather in person again. Yeah. So I, I like to, to paint the, the journey, right? The pandemic journey. So March, 2020, our business was 80% roughly in person, 20% virtual. Within a week, we had to figure out a plan to make that 100% virtual, which we did. But I would say that 2020, it was much more of you're taking a program, a conference, seminars, et cetera, that were designed for in-person and trying to convert them to virtual. 2021, then you're now shifting and you're saying, okay, how do you design for virtual? And so now we have these same events but our mindset was not how do we convert it from in-person to virtual, but we're offering this virtual. How do we improve that virtual experience? How do we actually desire for virtual? And that led us to make some changes to session length and conferences, right? So they were shorter versus the longer session lengths that were in person. We had a lot of 75 minute, 90 minute sessions in the in-person version and those got shortened, which meant you can also do additional content if you want it. We started doing a lot of some more keynote sessions, which are harder to do in person because there are some space limitations, but you certainly didn't need to worry about having a ballroom that could fit everyone. And, and so we added more general session keynote style type things to it. We also could reach more national leaders, more international leaders. So we were no longer restricted by travel concerns or or other aspects. And, and our budget for speakers could be used more just more strategically because now we didn't have to worry about covering travel costs associated with it. So it could truly go to just speaker honorariums and not all of the other aspects, which opened up our ability to just bring some thought leaders and names that we wouldn't have been able to bring otherwise. It also removed some of the, the geographic restrictions, as well as some of the date restrictions, because when you're trying to work with venues and their availability and speaker availability and getting all of those things to align, there's, there's a lot of 
coordination there, which also means that it often takes longer to publish a calendar and dates. And so all of a sudden, we're able to plan much further out and say, here's our entire year's schedule, and here's some of the dates we're looking at for next year. So we're able to project further out. And so that's that's been a benefit. The, the challenge we did find, though, was with that networking piece and that connection, even though we we have the they have the ability to chat and interact with each other because we leave that function on. So they there are some that do use that and chat with each other, chat with the speakers, ask questions or whatnot. Someone that other just vibrant informal connection and interaction that happens when you're in the same space, that it that has been harder to solve for. It's really we tried a lot of different things, virtual happy hours and and networking things, um, virtual bingo. There's all these ideas that were out there and we experimented with a lot of different ones in our different events. We have not found that that magic approach that really mimics some of those just serendipitous connections that you make in person. And so where we are at now in, in 2022 is we're saying, okay, if that's the piece we're trying to solve for, because the actual virtual learning is working well, right? And all of its benefits, that's working well. So the piece we're really trying to learn to solve for is that networking and connection and relationship. What does that need to look like? And so how does the in-person experience change? Because maybe the learning or a lot of it might still be virtual, but the in-person may be more the experience element. So we're looking at different venues like Top Golf and other places and saying, how do we leverage those? And maybe they do do learning for a couple hours together, could be virtually streamed in, but when they're done, they go to a couple of bays and they're they're doing golf together. You know, so how do we rethink that? So that's what we're working on figuring out. We don't have it figured out yet, but we're working on it. We're experimenting with things, different things, and learning as we go. Well, I think you're certainly not alone in that exploration that you're going out. I think so many people are trying to crack that nut of effective online networking and just sense of community, right? It's not even necessarily the, the sometimes the networking part you can almost sort of solve for if people are really thinking about kind of business connections, but can be just at the very personal level. Mm-hmm. And I think you mentioned the word serendipitous, you know, that just that idea of, you know, people you wouldn't necessarily know that you wanted to talk to at an event right. that you end up bumping right. up against. So, well, good luck as you uh, continue to work on that. I'd love to circle back to DEI since you brought that up as your, you know, the role there as the DEI officer. And I did see that OSCPA is is trying to act as an influencer in Ohio and beyond around, you know, making sure that diversity, equity, and inclusion becomes more than just kind of something that organizations are aspiring to and, and, okay. and becomes something that people are taking action around. Would you tell us a little bit more about what OSCPA is is offering in, in terms of DEI and to help organizations? Yeah. So again, this has been a journey. <laughs> and one of the things we've realized on this journey is that we got to meet people where they're at. We have to listen and engage and 
really try and make sure that we create space for conversations to happen, create space for people to really grapple with some of the different viewpoints and and what does DEI really mean and how does that look? And so we put ourselves in four buckets, essentially. We're saying that there are some learning and development resources that we're going to make available to all. And that is generally done through our on-demand portfolio. So we have learning there, part of what we call Crossing Bridges series. And we use the Crossing Bridges of this idea that when you start to get curious about other people's story and their point of view and perspective and how it came to shape, that's when you have started to cross that bridge, right? And started to make that connection. And so we have learning resources. We post articles in our magazine that we issue six times a year on on DEI. We have some DEI curriculum within our membership curriculum as well. And we cover it in, in various other ways as far as just getting people to think about it and raise awareness. For those who want to understand and go a little bit further and understand what their environment is like, we offer a cultural and inclusion assessment. And so they can actually start to understand, well, how do our own employees, how do our colleagues, associates, how do they actually feel about our environment? Like we may have done DEI for a while, but how are people actually experiencing inclusion in our organization, right? It it doesn't really look and ask you, do you have these things in place? Because it's not a DEI checklist, it's not a dashboard or any of those things. It really is a surveying of employees to understand how are they actually, do they actually feel included? Do they actually feel like they belong? Do they actually feel like they're being heard, right? All of those things. So so for those who want that, we offer that. And then the third bucket is if the, if you have a company that really wants to tackle a particular aspect of their culture or something that they want to accomplish from a DEI space, then we do offer strategy consulting, not in everything, because we're not organizational change experts, but we do offer some things specific to DEI. And then we also, again, have third parties that we partner with on broader things. And then that last bucket then would be for organizations that want to engage in some facilitated conversations or facilitated workshops where they feel a need to bring people together to learn how to dialogue around these and engage in those difficult conversations, right? How do you get individuals that might be on opposite sides of the spectrum politically to occupy the same space and have a conversation that is honoring to both parties and yet recognize that there, there are differences in how they are viewing the world and what they believe is the right course of action for the country to move forward. Wow, it sounds like there's actually quite a lot that you're offering in the DEI space, kind of running that gamut from more just resources and information all the way up to those facilitated conversations. This sounds fantastic as, as an offering, and it's relatively new that you've added this to the portfolio. Is that correct? 
Correct. We, interestingly enough, we had added the Crossing Bridges series in 2020, not as a result of George Floyd or any of those things that, that were happening. We had already planned it in 2019. And we what basically had happened is we had planned to have a DEI summit, our first one, in 2020, and it was going to be August 13th of 2020. So we had planned it in, in 2019. And then the pandemic happened and we're like, well, we're not going to be able to gather people together in August to hold this summit. But we already have all these thought leaders lined up and we have all of these things already planned. What if we offered it as a series of webinars instead recorded them, and then made that a part of the catalog going forward. So we started moving forward with that plan. It just then happened that then everything else happened. So it's kind of ironic that that of the timing of yeah. all of this that happened. So all of these things were already established and the dates already established when everything else happened that summer of 2020. So... I'm thinking now about your role as CLO and thinking that you play a large role, I assume, in determining what goes into the catalog of offerings, your portfolio of offerings, and maybe what needs to come out of the portfolio. So would you just talk a little bit with us about how you approach that decision-making one of the things we've we've done is we have really embraced data. And so we have become a data, I won't say driven, data-informed organization. Because I do think that you have to understand the qualitative aspect as well. And that isn't always captured in the data. But the data can point you to where you might need to ask more questions to understand what's actually going on. So we have become data-informed. We have Power BI dashboards. And and part of what we look at is what are learners engaging in where, like what are we try and look at it from various different aspects, demographics, roles, et cetera, based on what information we have available. But we also are doing environmental scanning. So we are continually scanning the environment, what's going on that's impacting the business environment. So the supply chain crisis, well, how does that impact, especially within finance and accounting, individuals that are really charged with things such as forecasting and financial analysis and enterprise risk management, all of these aspects, well, you have a supply chain crisis that impacts all of those roles, right? And so we are continually scanning for new things, emerging risks or trends that we may need to add in that we're not covering. So we added in a lot more learning around ESG over the past couple of years, environmental social governance, as that continues to Gain traction in the U.S. has had traction outside of the United States, but as it starts to get more inroads in the U.S., just understanding that. Uh, so we're always looking at that. And then we want to make sure that content isn't stale. There is some content we can consider evergreen, right? How you lead people. Humans are complex, 
but they are also consistently complex, right? (laughs) Human psychology hasn't changed that significantly for some time, right? I, I study human psychology. I am fascinated by it. And I have read across multiple different time periods, Victorian era, World War I, World War II, fascinating studies on human psychology. But then even back into some of the medieval periods and all of those things. And there is a consistent arc of human psychology, right? And so some of those things we know are, are evergreen. So we we will leave those and then we'll only challenge them as far as do they need updated because of perhaps language or other things as we we navigate, maybe they might need to use more modern language or some of those things. And so we're constantly looking at rolling things off from that perspective or if the rules just change or other things, right? So if it's outdated in any way, then we'll roll it off. I know, too, that you identify as a coach. And so I'm curious to get your perspective on coaching as a learning option, as an approach to learning and how it potentially could be part of a portfolio of what a learning business offers. Yes, I I honestly believe coaching is one of the most undertapped skills for leaders and for development of people, because what coaching really assumes is that individuals are capable of working through problems if they are guided through just asking questions they may not have thought of, right? And so I love when I'm having a conversation with someone and I ask them a question and they're like, that's a really good question. I haven't thought of that. Good. That's the whole point, right? Is to to spark that thing. But once they think it and they think through it and they work through it, I find that they generally come up with their own answers, right? And they don't need me to solve for them. What they need me to do is listen and help them hear better what they're already thinking, right? And so I think from a learning business. Our ability to do that first with our members to try and hear what their thing, but then also to try and cultivate that in them to help them be better leaders and to help them develop their teams. I think that can be a great offering to them because it ties into the number one issue that is affecting most businesses, which is talent right? Talent acquisition, talent retention. And so if people are better coaches, create better environments in which people are engaged, they have more autonomy, they they just feel more empowered to make decisions, they're going to end up having more intrinsic motivation and they're going to end up more engaged. You described yourself as a learning enthusiast. You shared that you're working on your PhD in organizational leadership. So clearly, you're learning, you're learning all the time. And so I would love to hear a little bit about your approach to your own learning. Do you have specific habits or sources or practices that you pursue to really help you continue to grow professionally and and personally? So I'm an avid reader. I read anywhere from 60 to about 75, 80 books a year. Um, Right now, I've read about 66 books so far this year. 
Wow, you're going to break your record then. I, I, I might break my record. Um, and one of the reasons, though, is I, I do believe that we, we can't know what we don't know, right? And, and it's one of those oxymorons, like how do you become aware of your blind spots? How do you start to know that you don't know? And one of the ways is to read widely, right? And so I will, I don't put any limits on my reading. If something catches my attention, I'll read it. I've been reading about climate change because I'm like, there's a lot of arguments on both sides of climate change. And so if I am going to be that coach and that facilitator of conversation and dialogue and that DEI person that can bring people in the room and have a difficult conversation, then I need to understand the full realm of the debates. And so I'm, I'm reading on both sides of the argument. It's really hard to find neutral, but like to find neutral that are just presenting facts. But right now, I'm at least reading on both sides. So I look at what are the things where there's a lot of controversy and I don't really have a lot of information. I'm going to read up on that. What are some new trends that are going on that I don't understand that well to be able to even decide whether our learners need to know it and what they need to know. So a few years ago, I took a blockchain course. Right. Because I didn't know a lot about blockchain. And so I just I didn't. I, so I took a blockchain one on one course and some other things just to understand it better so that I can then say, well, how might that affect our finance and accounting professionals? And then what might they need? In the course of that, I realized that there are people who do a really good job of taking complex topics and making them digestible and some who do not. Well, <laughs> And so like, well, this course really helped me. This course left, left me completely confused. And so I think that is also helpful for me. So I, I've done, I, I laugh. If you look at my playlist for different learning, it will look very eclectic. And, and it is, it is all over the board. But I think that helps me to be able to synthesize and to really be able to challenge and sort through what's hype and what's real. And so cryptocurrency, I'm still getting up to date on that, but that was part of my blockchain course as well as cryptocurrency, but there's been new developments. So, okay, so what's the new developments? What does that look like? So I read across a whole variety of topics, different industries, different just time periods, different cultures. I, I try and read across a variety of authors, not just Western authors, but I've read from Middle Eastern authors and from Brazilian and, and you know, Hispanic, Latinx, et cetera, right? To try and understand what are some of the cultural nuances and differences, but what are similarities as well? So it sounds like part of what you're doing in your professional and personal growth and your own approach to learning is is paying attention to trends. You mentioned blockchain, cryptocurrency. So I'd be curious to know, you know, when you think about the future of learning, are there developments or trends that you have your eye on in particular? Yeah, so I just got a subscription to read it for me. 
And as a lifelong learner, I find it interesting to try and read or listen to someone else's summary of a book. So I want to try that out. Let's see what that's like. And, and ask them other people who do believe in it, what, what they get out of that. Um, but there is a lot of this, how can you curate? Because there is so much out there, right? There are thousands of books on leadership. Not everyone's going to be an avid reader like me. They're not going to read 60 plus books a year. So if they're going to spend time once a quarter digging into something, what is it going to be? I might have four or five things that I can get through. What are they? So I am looking at that. I'm looking at the, the trying to figure out what the whole podcast space. It's the same thing. There are so many different podcasts you can listen to. And I found some really good ones. But how do we, again, source through that noise? And what is our role in trying to identify perhaps some leadership development podcasts that would be good to pull in and make available to our members? And so I do think that there is a recognition that people are going to need to learn in bite size as well. And there are some things that are good from a just-in-time for bite size, but you are not going to become a marketing expert by watching 10 three-minute videos, right? And so got to be careful on how we oversell. But I do think some of those learning trends where it's, it's the ability to continue to grow in very specific ways over the course of your life is really opening up the opportunity to have multiple careers in a lifetime. And so this idea of micro-credentials and, you know, one of the things I want to study at some point in time is public policy. After I finish my PhD program, but, you know, but I don't want to go get my master's in public policy or even my bachelor's in public policy. And my husband would probably be like, really? Or like, are you ever going to be done? But a certificate, like a micro-credential in public policy where I can really hone in on two or three courses that to me would support this idea that I do want to make sure I'm able to be well-informed when I'm weighing into public policy. And I think that's the trend I'm most excited about is that I'm starting to see that being embraced, this idea that people can have multiple interests, they can have multiple competencies in their portfolio they they can, it can be stackable and they can be building and essentially have their your own unique career path that they continue to build out over time Tiffany Crosby is the Chief Learning Officer and DEI Officer at the Ohio Society of CPAs. You can email her directly at tcrosby at ohiocpa.com or connect with her on LinkedIn. You'll find links to the Ohio Society's site and Tiffany's LinkedIn profile in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 325. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 325, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. And we'd be grateful if you would subscribe, if you haven't yet, as subscriptions give us some data on the impact of the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you enjoy the show. 
Solis and I personally appreciate reviews and ratings, and they help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 325, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you.